This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. You'd think a country town would be a peaceful place, but Gary Dish's novel, Peace, is full of crime and seriously aberrant behaviour. So, Gary, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. Now, there's almost a, a slow burn effect in the escalation of criminal behaviour in this quiet township of Tiverton. What are you doing? Well, it's a rule of thumb that there has to be a murder on the first page or at least in the first chapter, but uh, there's no murder in my book until halfway through the novel. It was important to me to create the place, give the, a sense of a place, but with slowly escalating crimes, things going wrong, and to give a sense of the main character. But that does that add to the intensity, do you think, in terms well, of... Well, I hope so. I, I was too close to it as I was writing it to... to to tell because I knew where all the surprises were. So I'm just hoping that, well, my, my publisher clearly thinks that the surprises are well-placed, so oh, they, I, didn't, I didn't have to change much. They definitely are, but I think it adds to that uh, weight of expectation because it builds, and the crimes then do link. You've, you've got yeah. the, the opening crime is copper being stolen and the insulation has been burnt off causing a fire, causing a bushfire, so to speak, that's being investigated. But it leads into the criminal behaviour going on further in the township. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like a quote from Charles Dickens. He said, make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait. And that's the key word, I think. <laughs> well, you, you actually do make us laugh uh, because did I tag it properly? I think I did. You've got uh, Brenda going uh, for a drink. Her husband, Stu, was serving five years for robbery and her sons were headed that way. Brenda herself wasn't light-fingered or she hadn't been caught yet, but she was heavy-footed. She'd racked up fines and demerits the way some other women collected handbags. And that morning, no more than an hour ago, according to Monica Fuller, Brenda had tried to enter the main bar of the Tiverton pub without exiting her car first. <laughs> so th there's also this level of humour that you've got. Well, that, that's important to me in the, in the books, I think. But it also says something about the main character, Hirsch, because in my other crime novels, I take you into the minds of lots of characters, including the bad guys. So sometimes the reader knows ahead of the good guys who the bad guys are. Um, but in this novel, we only stay with Hirsch all the way through. We don't know what anyone else is thinking. And he is a genial kind of guy, really. He sees... He's, a put, he's put upon by senior police and powerful figures in the community, but he sees the joke in everything. Well, let's get into then Paul Hirschhausen, or Hirsch for short. He's the constable dealing with a range of domestic community concerns, and he's got to use his discretion and give a bit of latitude. But this can also get him into trouble. Um, we learn again more about him as the story goes. But the question is, how did you gain this insight about policing in a small township, country township? Um, a, a few things in my favour. I grew up in the world of this novel. Uh, it's called the mid-north of South Australia. It's wheat and wool country, halfway between Adelaide and the Flinders Ranges. So I know a fair bit about small town, small farm life. Uh, and there was a, a one officer police station in the town where I went to primary school, for example. Uh, the other influence was my brother. He was a, a re recently retired policeman, so he gave me a lot of insight into being a country cop. And I read an interesting article in the Melbourne Age 
a few years ago about a sergeant in the high country of Victoria and what his daily life was like, uh, as well as arresting people for speeding or whatever it might be. Um, he was had to be a social worker too. Yeah. Well, you've got Hirsch doing tours of the countryside, calling in on people. There are people who are bipolar, people who've got a drinking problem, people whose children are growing up and getting out of hand. So that social work is an integral part of what his duties are. Yeah, that's part of who he is, what he has to do. But therefore, how does that then affect his policing? <laughs> well, he takes shortcuts. He, 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 he's, prepared, he's prepared to let, for example, two kids steal a ute. That could be, could, they could face quite serious trouble for that. But he's prepared to not take uh, heavy-handed police action, but to try to get them to apologise to the owner of the ute as a way of... Uh, Fixing the problem. Well, there's, yeah, he organises an intervention, yeah. so to speak. But what's interesting is how he came upon the ute in the first place. It's just this observation <laughs> of what, as he's driving through, noticing the yeah. small things that are going on. So that eye for detail then comes through in your writing as well. And Yeah, I can't write anything until I can see the place and see the people. Uh, it runs across my head like a film script, so... I think that helps me see those sorts of things. But it gives an authenticity then to the characters and the situations therein. So Paul Hershenhausen, or Hirsch, is a damaged character in a way. We find that out halfway through the novel. Yeah, he he's a city boy, really. He's never been to the bush before. So there is uh, two elements of tension here. One is he's he needs to investigate crimes and work out what's going on. At the same time, he needs to investigate the landscape because he doesn't, he's not familiar with it. So uh, unlike a city cop like Inspector Rebus um, in Edinburgh or Bosch in Los Angeles, they grew up there, they know the place, but Hirsch is an outsider and he needs to know the place as well as the crimes. So uh, that, to me, was an essential aspect of the story. Well, he, he also needs to become part of the community, but yeah. as with most country communities, at, you know, 25 years in the place and you're starting to be accepted yeah. sort of thing. So he's got that challenge. Yeah. So he's addressing that by being Santa Claus. <laughs> so, very reluctantly, he's uh, agreed, under some pressure from the town council, to be uh, uh, Santa Claus to give presents to the town and farm kids and to ride in on horseback and he's never ridden a horse before so <laughs> and he's also got to judge the the light shows as yeah. well and so this is actually going to cause problems as well as helping yeah. him to become part of the community a, a major crime uh, occurs as a result of that indirectly yes yeah. and and so again building the intensity as we yeah. go you've got other damaged characters in this uh novel the flan family brenda who's the drunk we were talking about before and her two boys mm -hmm. um wayne and adam uh, they almost become natural suspects when crime occurs so misdirection perhaps or yeah. uh you know, the the way things are being played there. In, I, yeah, I think a, a, a certain level of misdirection is important in crime fiction. Mm. You want you want the readers to exercise their minds about the wrong character or the wrong issues. 
And and also then the nature of the crime, because some of the crimes are more serious than others. Some of them are linked, some of them are not. You've got the Cobbs and Daryl, 17, a big, soft, sloppy boy with a touch of ADHD. <laughs> so you know, boys growing up, being basically unemployed, finding things to do, mm. like, as you say, stealing utes. How serious a crime is it? How much of it is part of the natural uh, part of country life? Martin Gwynn. <laughs> Tell me about Martin Gwynn. There's one in he's, every town, basically. Yeah, he's, the, he's the town busybody. He knows better than anyone else. And he's almost at one level is telling Hirsch how to do his job. He's, Hirsch often feels that he's a disappointment to Martin because things are not going the way Martin would like them to go. And every town has those sorts yeah. of characters that this is the way it's been done. This is the way it's got to continue. But also then... Um, Paul is struggling with his own job as well because he's got pressure from uh, the those above him, the authorities, etc., um, about the way he's doing his job, which is frustrating him as well. Um, where are we? Mr Adblett advises that ratepayer-funded asphalt was used to fill potholes in the driveway of the Tiverton police station recently. What do you have to say in regard to this matter? Unnoticed by Gaddis, Rosie Delille rolled her eyes heavenwards, then back at Hirsch. Apart from that, her face was flat and Hirsch had to look away or he'd have started grinning. He chose his words carefully. It was a donation, sir, from the crew of the council's patching track. Apparently, they often have asphalt spoil left over at the end of the day and rather than let it go to waste, they... Gaddis sharpened. Your driveway was patched first thing in the morning, Constable. Not at the end of the day. Hirsch said nothing. If he waited, the blame might be might flow onto the Bagshaw brothers. The council employees will face internal disciplinary proceedings. Meanwhile, you will appreciate that the South Australia Police Service cannot be seen to accept favours. Did you pay these men? I'll buy the Bagshaw twins a couple of beers one day, Hirsch thought, for laying asphalt worth about two bucks. No, sir. So even the his own upper... Uh, Echelon is is yeah. giving him a hard time. Yeah, he's he's a, a, a put upon character. He's trying, he's muddling through, trying to do the right thing. But uh, there are certain rules and regulations that he should have uh, adhered to. In contrast to this, then all the pettiness and the triviality that seems to be there in country towns and the way people are behaving. The escalation, as you say, the murder occurring halfway through and there are people being lost and have to be found. The intensity, then, of the crime. I'm just wondering how far we can go down this path. We don't want to give anything away, but you're providing a contrast there in many ways between the nature of the, the extent of the crime, which is almost going to the international level, and the pettiness of the town. Uh, it was unintended, but it, uh, I'm glad that you saw it. <laughs> yeah. uh, often uh, the, these sorts of effects are unintended, but uh, despite themselves, um, these terrible things are happening. The, the town might be full of misfits in many ways, but it's also full of, of salt-of-the-earth people, what? and they resent outside interference whenever it might happen. They're unwilling to suspect their own. But again, often there are those within the community and there's a level of tolerance, uh, a, letter, a level of blame. You've got to live with these people, the boys yeah. that are growing up, that are finding an outlet, the eccentric characters. Mm-hmm. How do 
those country towns survive, therefore? That? Well, a lot of them aren't surviving anymore. Um, I mentioned the town of Tiverton in the story that the bank closed many years ago, the hardware store even longer ago. Uh, kids are leaving to go to the cities for work because there's no work locally. The family farm almost no longer exists. It's being brought up by a big Chinese agri-company, for example. Uh, people retrain. Uh, if the family, family farm's no longer viable, um, uh, the wife might go and work in a hospital and, and the the husband go and work on a wind farm, turbine. So things, these towns are un, uh, under flux, I think, well, yeah. and, and dying, many of them. And Paul has been sent there for his sins, yes. so to speak. Um, he was in a um, station that where there was corruption, yeah, and he's, he's been implicated. Yeah, he was, as I said, he's a city boy, a fish out of water, but he belonged to a suburban CIB squad that uh, was disbanded and some members jailed, except for, for uh, corruption. And does that also then speak to the city-country divide, where his superiors don't really know what policing is about in country towns? I think so, yeah. They're, they're not... The need to obey rules and regulations in the city is probably much uh, greater and there's much more oversight. There's always eyes upon you. But in the country, Hirsch realises that if he's going to be a fair man, he can bend corners. Well, the letter of the law only applies in certain circumstances and latitude needs to be afforded in others, especially in a community where you've got to show understanding, yeah. I think. The novel is called Peace, an interesting title. We want a bit of peace in, after all the chaos that takes place. The author is Gary Disher, and it's from Text Publishing. So, Gary, thank you very much for coming Thanks, in Dave. today. Thanks a lot. Well, I'm here with Mary Moody, and that might be a name, you know, from 10 years on Gardening Australia or from other books she has written while living in France. But the first paragraph of her new book has us in a very different setting and emotion, and I'd like Mary to read it. Certainly, Jan. In those first few seconds between the soft nothingness of sleep and the inevitability of waking, I have completely forgotten... Lying on my right side, I open my eyes and see David's fine profile as ever. His smooth olive skin, his silvery hair on the pillow. Then I remember, he died last night, just after eight o'clock. He's still here with me in our bed of more than four decades. So we learn right very from the very beginning that this is going to be a book about your life with David and over so many times. You, you've, you've, well, your own life, you've taken botanical treks and tours in China and the Himalayas, but this book is called The Accidental Tour Guide. Accident, not planned. So where have you taken the reader on tour? <laughs> well, the accident occurred in the, in the 1990s when I was doing the gardening show on the ABC and my speciality was alpine plants and an adventure travel company in Sydney had worked out that a lot of trekkers weren't just young kids with backpacks, they were older people, retired people, and asked me to go along on a trek um, to identify the amazing rhododendrons and Himalayan musk roses and fantastic perennials up, you know, at altitude. 
And it was a life-changing experience for me, and I came back. I mean, I had started out as a TV journalist in Sydney, and here I was. I had never expected to end up doing anything like this, and I came back and said to my husband, I just want to do this for the rest of my life, take people up into the mountains and, and see the wonder that is the Himalayas. And the accident here is that you're actually touring us through your own life, as um, going through the death and what happened later with you? Mm. <laughs> um, part one of this book is called Losing David, but we better find out just where you found him. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, flashback to 1971 when I had finished my cadetship as a journalist and I was working at Channel 9. I was sort of hoping to become a TV um, news reporter. But apart from Caroline Jones, I don't think there were any women doing that job back then. And I got a job in the publicity department of Channel 9 and this very strange-looking man came in with um, long hair and a denim jacket and a long red beard almost down to his navel, sat on the edge of my desk and proceeded to chat me up. And I went home and said to my mum, honestly, mum, there's this bloke at Channel 9 looks just like a garden gnome. (laughs) But there was problems with him because he's much older than you. Uh, He was about 11 years older. And he certainly had baggage. He did have a lot of baggage. (laughs) I was very young and I thought I was quite sophisticated, but obviously I was quite naive. Um, I was 21. And um, David was still married, although separated from his first wife, Kathleen, and he didn't men- he failed to mention to me <laughs> that she was um eight and a half months pregnant with a child and so it wasn't until we'd been going out for a little while that I met him once for coffee in the um in the Channel 9 cafeteria at lunchtime and he said to me with great delight my wife had a baby last night <laughs> and you could have scraped me off the floor really um but somehow we muddled through all of that and I ended up um, being part-time carer and at one stage full-time carer for that child um, once David and I got together and started having our own family. And you did that pretty young, so you had mm. quite a long working life because you had to. With him being in film, he was never never had a constant income or anything. So, But he, because of his film interest, he went to Cairns every year. And you think about anyone in the film industry, their communication skills must be wonderful. So... How did he talk about his illness? Well, yes, that's very interesting. He he was a great communicator. David was a great talker and a great listener. Um, but when he first um, was having problems, he was having problems he thought were, he described it like gastric reflux. But in fact, he was having trouble swallowing food. It was getting stuck in his esophagus. And he had tolerated that for a long, long time and then eventually had a gastroscope and there was a massive tumour there. And of course, by the time it was investigated, it was already too late. It had spread right through his lymphatic system. Mm, You spoke about another couple who had a different journey. They went to seminars on death and dying. They did alternative treatments, meditation and counselling. Did you and David do any of these? No. David's reaction to being diagnosed with terminal cancer was one of absolute outrage. He was furious. He was indignant. And because he was a very fit man, he was in Mm. his early 70s, he swam 2Ks every day. Um, He was a non-smoker, not much of a drinker at all. And he came from a family that was very long-lived, a Scottish, you know, hardy Mm. stock, and they all lived into their 90s or, or more. 
And he felt cheated and he also felt very insecure because he was in the film industry and he thought all the projects he was working on would not get funding because if anyone in the film industry found out that he was ill and certainly mm. terminally ill, all the money would you know, fall through the cracks. So I was dealing with a sick man who was also a very angry and uh, difficult man to deal with. You're right. David sees his cancer as a flaw, a failing. Absolutely. And that was the really sad thing for me, that he he beat himself up for mm. being in that situation. Um, and and he was he, he always had been a very self-critical man. He was a very driven man because he, he really, really needed to succeed. I think he'd had a very difficult relationship with his dad mm. and so he needed to prove himself. And when this came, when this diagnosis came, I mean, he'd been very well... Um, praised in the film industry. He'd won the Raymond Longford Award, which mm. is the highest um, industry award for contribution to the film industry, and, he, and he'd won the Human Rights Award for one of his films, a political film. But he was still very tough on himself. Yeah. Look, I love the literation you two devised. You decided that the doctor who gave you the diagnosis was demoralising, discouraging and dispiriting. What nickname did you give him? <laughs> David called that particular doctor, Dr. Death, and he became David's nemesis. And because David was not going to surrender or go gentle into that good night, he was going to fight that mm. illness to the last gasp, and that's what he did. Um, this man, this um, negative doctor, became sort of like a challenge to mm. him. It was what kept him going in a way. He, he actually, Dr. Death said he'd be lucky to live for a year, and he went for two years, I think, just to... Just, just, just know, to spite him. Just to spite him. And, and, and when the social worker did an unannounced visit that wasn't a particularly positive visit either was it no I wasn't there and a social worker came to see David at the farm where we were living and basically to say to him he was about to start chemotherapy and she said you know I want to talk to you David about acceptance you don't seem to be accepting what's happening and David who had also worked as an actor in his youth leapt to his feet melodramatically and said I am not a stupid man I understand the diagnosis I understand the prognosis but I'm fighting this and anyone who isn't fighting with me is my enemy and this poor woman <laughs> apparently I wasn't there dashed out the door in in uh, you know somewhat in fear of his reaction well he also perhaps overreacted in hospital now his mental his medical condition and all the everything he was taking taken he um he turned it. He turned him into a quote, disorientated, rambling madman. But I loved what you wrote about the nurses, mm. who actually saw this as a positive thing. Yes, they sort of said, um, "Well, we can see his determination. Yes. We don't see fear in his eyes." Yeah, that was exactly it. In fact, I think it was the um, the head of the uh, intensive care unit who said, "We love patients like David because they're fighting mm. and they're determined. It's the ones that lie still with fear in their eyes that we find the most difficult to deal with." That was a big comfort to me. I have to say. So he comes home to die and the, your extended family, what a wonderful group, they all gather and you're very con you want the grandchildren to see him. Yes. In fact, the house was full um, for the three days once we managed to get him home. They didn't want to release him from the hospital because he mm. had surgery. Um, and the, everyone was in the room when he died and I could never have done it. I mean, everyone... 
it isn't possible for everyone to get their loved one home when they're dying. Even with palliative care, you need a lot of support. They're, they're only there for brief hours during the day, and it's a 24-hour-a-day job. Mm. And so I was very well supported and well loved through all of that. But, yes, we even waited. So I stayed with him the night that he died, um, slept in the bed, mm. and the next day there were four more grandchildren coming up from Adelaide. So we let him stay at home until they'd been to see him in the bed where they, you know, had known him over 16 years that we'd been at the farm. His funeral, although I know that you did that whole week you sort of lost, you know, you just mm. couldn't really remember, it sounded wonderful. And fancy having two sons who had skill sets that could really help. <laughs> I know. So my youngest son, our youngest son, was a great amateur carpenter and he made the casket. He wanted to make his father's coffin and he did a beautiful job. And then our number two son... Um, ran parks and gardens at Mudgee and he had a, I didn't know you had such a thing, a grave digger's certificate (laughs) and he dug the grave and everyone made the food. We had a home funeral. It was a do-it-yourself job. It was lovely. Look, part two of the book, After David, and here I'm going to get Mary Moody to read just a little bit more about just what happened then. What page is that? This one. Here we go. I am part of a new tribe, the widowed. I haven't just lost David, I've lost a slice of who I am, part of my identity. When I get up in the morning, I'm living a different life. The patterns and routines of my day have changed. I make my own tea and toast and take it back to bed alone. I no longer need to consider David. It feels very strange indeed. Very strange, absolutely. And it takes you a while to sort of get rid, not get rid, but pass on a lot of his things. Now, his, his, um, the stuff he collected, 16 large boxes went to the film archives in Canberra, but there were lots left over, wasn't there? No, David had hoarded every oh. single pen and paper clip and everything from every film he ever made over a 35-year period. And um, they were all stored in boxes in the shed at this farm going up to the ceiling. And his last name was Hannay, David Hannay, and he'd just written in text on every box, Hannay's old shit. And it was, so it wasn't <laughs> sorted or archived in any way. And so it took me six months to actually go through everything. Yeah. I couldn't just throw it all out willy-nilly. I had to actually sift through it all. Most of it went to various places or to the tip, and then there were some treasures too. And there were some surprises, but, you know, you'll have to read the book to find just out, out just what they were. Um, and then finally, A Room of One's Own. You know, and I like this that you actually wrote honestly, honestly about the need for intimacy, but not another relationship. Mm. So what I did in the end was I sold the farm, and my youngest son and his um, wife sold their little cottage up in the Blue Mountains, and we bought a big old house together. And I have a room in which I have everything that I need. I've pared my life down from a five-bedroom farmhouse to one room. I have my art, my music my computer and I'm content. And just I'm going to finish up with something about botany. I was really surprised that when you were researching the drugs that David was given, tax call that came from the yew tree, yew tree mm. and the symbolism of a yew tree. A symbolism of a yew tree and the fact that um, I, this is a tree that I had photographed on often on my botanical treks and you know, it was ironic to me that there it was. It was the chemotherapy drug that is used to deal with these very, very difficult cancers. 
oh, life just returns, doesn't it? Well, and I'm glad it it has for you in such a a positive way. Well, the subtitle of The Accidental Tour Guide sums up exactly what Mary Moody's book is about, Adventures in Life and Death. Thank you very much, Mary. Oh, the book is a Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster, yeah. And... Thank you, David. Not a worry. I talked to Gary Disher about his novel piece, which was from Text Publishing. That takes us out until next Next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.